Chapter 10 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Independence. Three events had occurred outside the armies that did very much towards hastening the separation between the colonies and the mother country. One of these was the refusal of the king and parliament even to receive, much less to listen to, the delegate who was sent by Congress to present the last appeal of the patriots for justice and kindness at the hands of their rulers. As we already know, the mass of the people, as well as of the members of Congress, had been opposed to independence. They declared that they still loved England, the home of their fathers and the former home of many of them, and that they had no desire to cut loose from that land. Some of the leaders deeply revered the name of that nation of which they still claimed to be a part. Others, who were property owners, were fearful of the losses that would be theirs in case of a revolution, and still others were of that conservative class which is ever bitterly opposed to anything like radical change in existing conditions. Nearly all the people in America, however, were agreed that the colonies were being treated very harshly, and when the last petition was curtly rejected, and even the man who carried it to England was not listened to, and his very prayer was not heard, it began to make some think that mild measures were not to be relied upon longer. Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Samuel Adams, Thomas Paine, and others had for some time believed that independence was the only hope remaining but they had been in such a minority that even these bold men had not deemed it wise to say very much about their own convictions. The second event that inflamed the feelings of the Americans was the wanton burning of Falmouth, Maine, now Portland, October 16, 1775. Captain Mowat, with four British vessels, had sailed into the harbor and set fire to the town. Churches, public buildings, and houses were all treated alike, and when the sun went down on that day, less than a fourth of the town remained standing, and more than a thousand men, women, and children were without a shelter of any kind, and had no protection from the cold weather which would soon be upon them. And, worst of all, there was absolutely no excuse for this wanton deed, and even the anger of those who had thus far not entered into the spirit of the struggle soon burned as fiercely as the blazing town of Falmouth when the news was spread over the land. Congress learned of the British captain's cruelty on the 31st of October, but even the report of the sad plight of the Maine people was somewhat overshadowed by the news that King George had hired 20,000 Hessian soldiers to come with his own reinforcements to America, and assist, by one strong vigorous campaign, in forever putting his rebellious subjects in America into the proper attitude of body and of mind. Again and again, rumors had been current that George III was about to employ mercenaries to help him subdue the colonies, but even the most bitter Tories had indignantly denied that their ruler would ever be guilty of the baseness of using hired soldiers to kill his own subjects, nor were the angry Americans the only ones to express such sentiments, for Empress Catherine of Russia, to whom King George had first applied for troops, had, at the time when she refused to provide the men, almost taunted him with the very same words used by the colonists themselves. But the king had succeeded in obtaining the men from the landgrave of Hesse Castle. It is said that the gambling debts of the petty prince played no small part in the transaction, and so it came to pass that four of the most successful European generals and twenty thousand of the best drilled troops were to be sent to America, 
in addition to such troops as England's king could spare from the wars in which he was then engaged, or with which he fancied himself to be threatened. How the Americans did hate those Hessian soldiers! They did not stop to think that the men themselves were not to blame, but the fault was to be charged to their rulers, who had sold their services and compelled them to leave their homes and kindred and cross the sea to shoot men against whom they had no grievance, and for whose quarrel they themselves cared nothing at all. Dutch butchers, the angry Americans termed them, and the hatred and contempt they felt for the foreign soldiers cannot fully be appreciated today. The language spoken by the Hessians sounded strangely gruff in their ears. For the most part, they were large men, and their very dress, to which they very foolishly and tenaciously clung in all sorts of places and in all kinds of weather, added much to the strangeness of their appearance. Their high fur hats, their long jack boots that came to the thighs, each foot being equipped with a long, heavy, and cruel spur, the thick, short broadsword, the short carbine, and the heavy gun with which every soldier was supplied made up a strange garb. But more impressive than any or all of these was the heavy black mustache each soldier permitted to grow long, which he was also said to dye every morning with shoe-blacking. This imparted a ferocious aspect to their faces, to which the smoothly shaved continentals were in no wise accustomed. These three events, like the last straws which are said, in connection with all the rest of the load, to break the back of the proverbial camel, provided to be too much for the long-suffering Americans. North Carolina, where the first bloodshed of the war had occurred, was now also the first to declare herself in favor of independence, and so to instruct her delegates to the Congress at Philadelphia. Other colonies followed her example, until at last all but New York had recorded themselves in favor of the action which was forever to separate the new land from the old. Although New York had not been able to express herself in favor of the proposed declaration, it was well understood how the most of her people felt concerning the matter, and the men in Philadelphia proceeded with their deliberations as confidently as if a formal vote in New York had been secured. It was on June 7, 1776, when Richard Henry Lee of Virginia had risen in the presence of the Congress, and with his clear ringing voice, he was a marvelous orator, had fearlessly read aloud the resolution, quote, that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be free and independent states, and that all political connection between us and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. Unquote. John Adams quickly seconded the resolution, though for the sake of the safety of the lives of the two men, Congress directed its secretary to omit from the records the name of each man. The wide world knows, however, all about it today. The consideration of the resolution was after two days postponed until the 1st of July, by which time it was believed that every colony would have put itself on record and instructed its delegates how to vote. A committee was nevertheless appointed to prepare a declaration, and the following men were named as members of it. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and Robert R. Livingstone of New York. Naturally, we should suppose that the name of Richard Henry Lee, who had introduced the resolution, would have been placed on this list. But the illness of his wife had compelled him to leave for home, and his absence therefore accounts for the non-appearance of his name. He was there in spirit, if he was compelled to be absent in the body. 
On the first day of July, 1776, with Benjamin Harrison in the chair, the resolution was brought up for action. The Declaration of Independence had been drawn up by Thomas Jefferson, who had been appointed chairman of the committee. He was a very young man at this time, a delegate from Virginia, not very much of a speaker, though his pen had already become known not only as that of a ready writer, but of an able writer as well. Jefferson had desired John Adams to draw up the document, but Adams, as far-sighted as he had been when he had secured the appointment of Washington as commander-in-chief of the army, and for the very same reasons, insisted upon his young colleague doing the work. In his autobiography, John Adams gave the following reasons for declining to do the work, and for his insistence that Jefferson should do it. Quote, 1. That he was a Virginian, and I am a Massachusettsian. 2. That he was a southern man, and I a northern one. 3. That I had been so obnoxious from my early and constant zeal in promoting the measure, that every draft of mine would undergo more severe scrutiny and criticism in Congress than one of his composition. 4. And lastly, that it would be reason enough, if there were no other, I had a great opinion of the elegance of his pen, and none at all of my own. I therefore insisted that no hesitation should be made on his part. He accordingly took the minutes, and in a day or two produced me his first draft." Unquote. Richard Henry Lee was absent on that first day of July, as we have said, owing to the illness in his family, and John Adams was called upon to defend the resolution he had seconded. Perhaps he was not the fiery, magnetic speaker that Lee was, but he was a man of great intellect, and his speech was a powerful one. Doubtless many of those who are reading these pages have declaimed in their school days portions of that speech, or supposed portions, before admiring audiences, and have declared that, quote, sink or swim, survive or perish, unquote, they were unhesitatingly in favor of independence. Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, Dr. Witherspoon of New Jersey, Edward Rutledge of South Carolina, and others also spoke warmly in its favor. The resolution was opposed by some, for what measure ever yet existed to which all men agreed. The strongest speech in opposition was made by John Dickinson, who brought forward points that in one form or another have been urged against every new movement since the world began. Quote, the country would not be any stronger, proposed alliances with France, Spain, or other foreign nations were all uncertain, there would be no hope of future favors from Great Britain, the colonies themselves had no settled government, and first all these details should be arranged, and then America might take her place among the nations of the world, unquote. All of which was not without weight, but after all was very much like the consent of the anxious mother for her boy to enter the water after he had learned to swim, or telling a young teacher or physician that he will be employed after he shall have had some experience. Learning comes by experience. And centuries ago, a writer declared that all such reasons as those advanced by John Dickinson against any movement, which of itself was right, would usually prevent the measure itself from being entered upon. Quote, he that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. Unquote. The resolution declaring the colonies to be free and independent was unanimously adopted on the second day of July, 1776. Nine colonies the preceding day had voted in favor of it. New York was still silent because, as we have said, her delegates had not been instructed. Pennsylvania voted nay, and so did South Carolina. Delaware was also counted in the negative, although one of her delegates cast his vote in favor of adopting the resolution. The final vote was unanimous, at least as far as twelve colonies were concerned. 
for the New York delegates, though not opposed to it, did not feel that they ought to vote for it. The form drawn up by Jefferson was modified and slightly changed, and after a full discussion, was adopted July 4, 1776. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. A great crowd of excited people had assembled in the streets, for by this time all the people of Philadelphia were aware of what was in the air. The slow moments passed, and many began to fear that Congress, after all, had become alarmed and the measure would fail. The old bellman was up in the steeple waiting anxiously for the signal. He had stationed a lad in place where he could easily perceive him, and the boy was to inform him just as soon as the vote had been taken. Still the time dragged on. Would the end never come? At last a sudden great shout went up from the assembled crowd. The boy clapped his hands and joined in the outcry, and the old bellman knew that the moment had arrived, and instantly the great iron tongue of the Liberty Bell sent forth its clamor, heard like the reports of the guns at Concord and Lexington, around the world. Cannon were fired, people shouted and sang, there were bonfires and illuminations in the evening, and grown men, as well as the ever-present small boys, seemed to be beside themselves with joy. It was a great day. It is a great thing to be free. To declare that a country is free is one thing, and to be free is, however, quite a different one, as the excited colonists were yet to learn by many sad and terrible experiences. But the birth of these United States of America was an assured fact from the day when the Continental Congress assembled in the old state house at Philadelphia, and the Liberty Bell sent forth its peals, which are yet ringing. Although few realized what the Declaration meant, they all, or nearly all, entered into the celebrations that followed. The fifty-six men who had signed it were very much in earnest, and their own feeling, as well as the Declaration itself, helped to arouse others. In New York, whither Washington with his army had come after the British had departed from Boston, what was done was recorded in one of the newspapers as follows. Quote, this afternoon, July 10th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was read at the head of each brigade of the Continental Army posted at, and in the vicinity of, New York. It was received everywhere with loud huzzas and the utmost demonstrations of joy. And tonight the equestrian statue of George III, which Tory pride and folly raised in the year 1770, has been by the sons of freedom been laid prostrate on the dirt, the just deserts of an ungrateful tyrant. The lead wherewith the monument was made is to be run into bullets, to assimilate with the brains of our infatuated adversaries, who, to gain a peppercorn, have lost an empire. Footnote. Lord Clare had said openly in the House of Commons that a peppercorn in acknowledgment of Britain's right to tax America was of more importance than millions without it. End of footnote. A gentleman who was present at this ominous fall of leaden majesty, looking back on the original hopeful's beginning, pertinently exclaimed in the language of the angel to Lucifer, quote, If thou beest he, but ah, how fallen, how changed, unquote. Still, the king of lead did more good to the struggling soldiers than ever the king of flesh had done for the store of bullets was largely increased by the melted statue. The real celebration in Boston occurred July 17th, when to a vast crowd of excited people assembled at Faneuil Hall, Colonel Crafts read the entire declaration. The great assembly had been silent throughout the reading, even the jubilant small boys realizing that something of an extraordinary nature was going on. But when at last the final paragraph had been read, such a shout went up, 
that it is said to have shaken the old cradle of liberty. Then the guns of the nearby batteries began to roar, giving vent to the feelings of the people by firing thirteen rounds. In Philadelphia there had been an exciting time, not only when the old bell had been rung after the vote in Congress had been taken, but on July 8th, when there was another special celebration. There was an immense crowd on Walnut Street to hear the reading, and as soon as it had been completed, the arms of the king were torn from their place in the courtroom and burned in a huge bonfire in the street. The bonfires and shouts and parades were kept up till midnight, when a heavy thunder shower at last dampened the ardor of the crowds and sent even the boys home for shelter. Nor were the celebrations confined to the large towns. Throughout the colonies there were banquets, anvils were fired, parades marched up and down the streets, and the first celebration of the 4th of July certainly was not lacking in noise, although different dates were selected by different towns for the occasion. The college boys at Nassau Hall, Princeton, made almost as great a commotion as they do now over a victory in football won over a rival college. Trenton, New London, Charlestown, Savannah, Newport, and other towns were particularly noticeable for their noisy delight. At Elizabethtown, Elizabeth, New Jersey, the old newspapers recorded the words of one worthy mother that became familiar during the war and have not been forgotten since. While the people were celebrating, doubtless as noisily as in the other towns, there came a rumor that the British were about to attack the town. Instantly the men prepared for the more serious work of defending their homes, and among those who eagerly offered themselves were four brothers, all young men. Although they were the only boys she had, the mother, when they were ready to go, instead of showing any fear, boldly said to them, quote, My children, you are going out to fight in a just cause, for the rights and liberties of your country. You have my blessing and prayer that God will protect and assist you, but if you fall, his will be done. Let me beg of you, my boys, that if you fall, it may be like men, and that your wounds may not be in your back parts. Unquote. The world has ever made much of the old Spartan mothers, but surely the mothers of the Revolution are also worthy of a place in our regard. End of chapter 10